song. Well, if you'd like to turn your Bibles to Philemon, and we're at verses 8 to 11 this morning, where we learn that the church of Jesus Christ is unique. Now, here is a picture of Stephen Lungu. Has anyone heard Stephen Lungu give his story? If you go home and you look on the Lansdowne website, you, there's a video of him giving his story about us uh, seven or eight years ago now. He, sorry, it's not a better picture of him, but he was born 17 years before I was born. He was born out in Zimbabwe, uh, and uh, when he was seven years old, his mum took him and his four-year-old brother to the uh, bus station. At the bus station, she said to Stephen, look after your little brother um, until I come back. And then she went away and never came back. She actually just went into a bar and got a drink and just watched to see what would happen to her two children. Stephen was left there for hours and hours with his little brother. It was horrendous. Grew up on the streets with anger, hatred to his mum filling his heart. So hostile, working for pennies for rich white people. Not only hating now his mother but, and hating the world around him, but hating the white uh, people. He joined a um, gang called the Black Shadows, and he was uh, a thug that led a group of thugs in the Black Shadows. And one day, it was his job to get this group of people to go and bomb a Christian meeting in a, a tent uh, meeting just on the outskirts of Harare. He went there with these petrol bombs that they had made and they were all around there and they said, let's do it all at once, wait till I give the word. And he thought, when would be the right time to throw these petrol bombs at the uh, crowd of people in this tent meeting? And um, a girl got up to sing and she was a very pretty girl. And so he thought, well, I'll wait till she finishes singing. <laughs> And uh, she introduced her song by saying that Jesus Christ had become her savior and he had changed everything. And then she sang about this. As Stephen Lungo was listening, he felt more and more unclean. He didn't give the command to them to throw the petrol bombs. And after the girl started singing, the, the preacher got up and started preaching. And he still didn't get them to throw the bombs. And they wondered what had happened. And then he said, I need to meet this Jesus. And so he started to walk to the front to see the minister. And of course he had his petrol bombs with him. So the, the uh, stewards tried to stop him. The others thought this was the command to start throwing the bombs. But he got down on his knees with the uh, preacher. And he said, he said, Lord, I can't read and I can't write. My family don't want me. I've got nothing. Please take me. 
Forgive me my sin. Please take me. And as he left that meeting, as people were screaming, shouting, petrol bombs being thrown, he was stepping over people to leave. He went back to where he slept. He just slept rough under a bridge in, a, in, in the uh, dust, the sand, with a gun uh, under his head. And he said he went to sleep in exactly the same place, but a totally different person. He got up the next day and started telling people about the difference that Jesus Christ had made for him. And his life has gone on. That was 1962. He's still preaching the gospel around the world today. His life transformed by Jesus Christ from an angry hostile terrorist to a preacher of the gospel. But that shouldn't surprise us because that's what happened to Onesimus, wasn't it? Onesimus was the slave. He was this runaway slave. He had all, all the hurt and bitterness of, of having been kidnapped as a child. What, what a, abuse he knew in the slave markets until he was in Philemon's house and then he was still a slave growing up and, and, and so hostile to the world around him and he ran away and he um, ends up meeting the Apostle Paul and being converted. Life transformed. Doesn't surprise us. That's what happened to the Apostle Paul 25 years before he met Onesimus. He was an angry man, so hostile against God and so hostile against the gospel. And Jesus Christ met him on the Damascus Road and his life was transformed. And th this is what happens to everybody who is converted. Maybe not as spectacularly, maybe not as dramatically, but just as truly... We were once without God and without hope in this world. We were once on the road that leads to destruction. Enemies of God in our hearts, blind spiritually. And Jesus Christ has invaded our lives, changed our lives, transformed our lives. So now we're new people. Now we're following Jesus Christ. We're on the road that leads to glory. We're walking on the paths of righteousness. And we have the life of God in the soul of man. Transformed. Which means that the company of Christians on earth called the church and every little grouping of them called the local church is the group of people who have been transformed. And so the church of Jesus Christ is different from everything else in the world. Everything else in the world is going that way, following that road. The church of Jesus Christ is following Jesus Christ walking on that straight and narrow road that leads to life. The church is different, dramatically different. So The church is unique. And, and so we see, first of all, that our leadership is different. That's if the church is working properly, all right? Sometimes sin gets in. The standards of the world around us control us, and things go horribly wrong. But when things haven't gone horribly wrong, when we're being as we ought to be, our leadership is different. This is verses 8 and 9. You see, our church leaders are not sergeant majors. 
I didn't notice when I walked in anyone stand to attention, click their heels together and salute. <laughs> we don't do that kind of thing. Our leaders aren't headmasters with the cane ready to administer justice to anyone who steps out of line. And our leaders aren't like that, you know, the petty person at work. You know, he's given a little bit of authority. And so he now makes life impossible for everybody else. He's throwing his weight around. He's trying to be a little Hitler in the uh, office. It's awful. Well, our leaders aren't like that. Forbidden to be like that. Our leaders are to be meek. Can you see what Paul says? Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. They are meek, not weak. You know the difference between being meek and being weak? There's dad. He's in the front room with his four-year-old son. And his four-year-old son jumps on dad and says, I'm going to fight you. And so they start having a fight. And they're rolling around on the carpet. And dad gets his arm and snaps it over his leg. No, of course he doesn't. He could do. He could just pick him up and fling him against the wall. Kick him out the window. He's got the strength to do that. But he's controlled by love. He controls his strength. So he's meek. And actually the little boy thinks he wins, doesn't he? That's the way it works. You know, you've got the strength. You're not weak. But you are meek. It's under control. And so you are gentle. Now, Paul says that he could order Philemon. That's important to notice this. It's not that he's not allowed to use his authority. He says, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you. He has authority as a leader in the church. Indeed, it's Christian authority. Look at it. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you, he has this authority. When we have a meek leadership, we still have a leadership that has authority. It's just that our leaders choose to act in love and not throw their weight around. Choose not to um, be bullies. Now there comes a time when the dad has to discipline his four-year-old son. And he will do it in love. But that's not every day. That's not the lifestyle that he chooses. He chooses to be meek. Now, it's hard to be meek. Because we live in a society that thinks that meekness is weakness. And we live in a society where people are hungry for power. And so it's really hard to be a meek leader. I have been in situations where I've been seeing people who are behaving in horrific ways. And I have told them that they are no longer allowed to remain church members if they're living like this. And they have been threatening to take me to the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, people have been threatening to take me to the Old Bailey. And what's my response? It's not to be tit for tat. We don't fight by those rules. We 
have a different style of leadership. We are meek. So we have to be gentle and humble. But not weak. There have been other times when I've been in a meeting with people who are behaving in a really bad way. And they've been my really, really good friends. And I want to just say to them, look, 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 yeah, you do what you want. But I know that what they're doing is damaging the flock. And I have to keep saying to myself, I'm a shepherd. I've got to protect the flock. Don't don't worry about your friendship and your reputation. Worry about your responsibilities. Protect the flock. And sometimes you have to be meek and firm and forceful at exactly the same time. We are meek, although I could be bold, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. Meek, not weak. They appeal, not command. Yet I prefer to appeal to you. Now, as I said with the little child who's um, naughty, sometimes it's right to command. Paul tells Timothy in, I think it's 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, teach and command these things. There is a time where we need to give commands. Um, Basically, three areas. If someone is standing up and preaching a false gospel that destroys people's souls, we will command them to stop. There's no debate about it. We don't have a church vote on it. We command them to stop. They're destroying people's souls. If someone is committing adultery, we don't go for a church meeting to discuss it. We command them to stop or leave. They are destroying families. And if a person is being divisive, disruptive, we command them to stop. They are destroying the church of God. Out of love, Sometimes we have to take a firm hand. But that's not the norm. That's the exception. The rule is we prefer to appeal and we will appeal every time we possibly can. We are the opposite of those who make lots and lots of rules and keep giving rules to people to obey. I don't know whether you grew up like I I did, but I grew up with so many rules, especially of what I could and couldn't do on Sunday and what books I could read and couldn't read and what clothes I could wear and couldn't wear and what football was the big thing. Football was horrendous, you know. We weren't allowed to play football, but we were allowed to play table tennis. I didn't understand it. Maybe they didn't know we were playing table tennis. (laughs) But when I was in French West Africa, uh, I remember the minister of the church preaching there. He said, you're not allowed to drink. Which is odd because Jesus drank. Communion is drinking. You're not allowed to drink. You're not allowed to smoke. You're not allowed to use hair shampoo. (laughs) Okay, it's all right if you're bald. But... um, I don't know where you get these things from, but they're petty people who like to give rules. They like to give commands. They want to be commanding people, not appealing to them. They're not encouraging people to grow. They're trying to keep people in some kind of slavery. Now, certain people like lots of rules. 
Certain people like to be told what they can and can't do. So you dress in a certain way. And then you feel superior to everybody else because you're dressing in that way. You know, you drink a certain kind of coffee. Therefore, you are superior to those who don't. You drive a certain kind of car. It has low emissions. You are superior to others. And there are some people who like rules because by keeping them, they feel they're better than others. But that's not spiritual growth. That's legalism. That's Phariseeism, making rules and trying to keep people in little uh, ghettos controlled by these things. Paul talks about those who appeal to weak-willed people, giving them rules, controlling them. But Paul wouldn't dictate to Philemon. Now here's the thing I want you to think about all this week. Slavery is one of the great horrors of the world. And it, even about slavery, Paul wouldn't command Philemon. Yeah, leaders urge, they appeal, they exhort, they plead, but they don't bully. Do you know what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24? And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will give them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Even these people who have been taken captive by the devil to do the devil's will, and he's to instruct them gently. Isn't this different to the world? It's different to anything else we know about. And not only do they appeal, not command, but they act, our leaders act in love. Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of of love. There's no threats. He doesn't say, Philemon, if you don't do this, then you know what the consequences will be. No threats, no intimidation. That's what Caesar does. That's what Pontius Pilate does. That's what Donald Trump does. We're to be like Jesus Christ. So we saw last week, gentle and humble of heart. This is how healthy leaders function. This is why you need to pray for your leaders. Because this won't happen naturally. This will only happen supernaturally. And this is why in areas where we are leaders, we have to get down on our knees and examine ourselves and keep praying that we might reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ in this community. Because this is what godly leadership is to be like. Different. Not only is our leadership different, but also our, in our, as a church, our following of our leaders is different. Verses 8 and 9. The, the whole membership, the whole 
family of Jesus Christ is different from everything else in this world. Not just our leadership is different. It's not that we have a different kind of leadership, but we all follow just as the world does. No, we have a different kind of leadership that leads in a certain way, and we have a different kind of following that leads in a certain way. We see, first of all, in verse 8, that we follow by different standards. This is, this is again, interesting, because Paul says to Philemon, although I... Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. Philemon knows what he ought to do. How does he know what he ought to do? Society tells you what you ought to do with a runaway slave. With a runaway slave, you brand him on the face. You put a collar around him, a metal collar, in which you have inscribed your address telling anyone who sees him to bring him back. You whip him savagely. You make him work down the mines where he's going to die. You have him crucified. That's what you do with runaway slaves. You don't let them get away with it, because if you let one get away with it, what's the others going to do? When you have runaway slaves, you deal with them. That's what society says. And yet Paul says to Philemon, you know what you ought to do. He knows that he follows different standards. He follows gospel standards that forgive sinners. The prodigal son is welcomed back. Jesus Christ suffered so that we don't bear the punishment of our sins. We know what we ought to do. And it's not what society says. It's what Jesus Christ says. When I was uh, uh, after school, before I went to uh, college, I spent some time working on the factory floor. I, I did nights, and there was a Christian lad there. It's always nice when you have another Christian with you to, to work. And uh, a guy came in drunk, and the Christian guy had to tell him that he was doing his job badly. And the drunk just started beating him up, smashing him in the face, knocking him over, jumping on top of him. And the Christian guy didn't fight back. Indeed, when they pulled the drunk off him, the Christian guy was on the phone to the manager saying that this guy had a bad week and everything and making sure the guy didn't lose his job. <laughs> the next day in the factory, there were those who said, oh, he's a wimp. Oh, if it was me, I would have, the whole factory would have been you know, demolished. Others wanted to know what the gospel was. It was a great opportunity to witness because he acted on the factory floor by Christian standards. It's not easy. And sometimes it's not easy to know what the Christian standards are. When I finished working at Lansdowne and I was getting no wage, yet I was going out preaching on Sundays. Now, churches would give me some money. Did I have to declare that? Was that taxable? So I rang up the um, tax office because I didn't want to be arrested for fiddling my taxes. Didn't want to have to pay them. But <laughs> and they told me, oh, it's very difficult. If it's a one-off gift, then you don't have to pay. If it's regular, monthly, then you have to declare it as an income. But we have to not be like the society around us. We follow different standards. We're following Jesus Christ. Not only do we follow different standards, but we know that mere obedience isn't enough. 
Now verse 9, where he says, I appeal to you, and verse 14, where he talks about it not forced, it's kind of brackets around this section. And the Apostle Paul is teaching us that mere obedience isn't glorifying to God. If a person just shows mere obedience because they're forced to do it, all you have there is overpowered rebellion, isn't it? It's like the little boy who was in church and his mum said, stand up for the songs. And he said, no. <laughs> so his mum gave him the glare. You know the glare? Yeah? You want to live till tea time? <laughs> so he stands up and he says... I'm standing up on the outside, but I'm still sitting down on the inside. <laughs> you see, mere obedience doesn't glorify God. If we do what God says simply because we've got to, frightened of the consequences, don't want to look hypocrites, then we are hypocrites. It's not real. It's not glorifying to God. Real obedience is not forced, but voluntary. It's spontaneous it's willing and therefore he says I appeal to you I'm not going to force you I appeal to you last week I told you about Johann Leonard Dober the Moravian Christian who went to be a missionary to the slaves in the West Indies but in order to be a slave to the West Indies he had to sell himself as a slave I didn't tell you the rest of the story. Some of you wanted to know what happened. Well, what happened was that he went to Copenhagen to sell himself as a slave, and no one was willing to buy him. No one wanted a white man as a slave because he would be noticeable. He'd be a ringleader. He would be a catalyst for problems in the plantations. And so he couldn't sell himself as a slave. So in the end, he got a job as manager in the uh, governor of um, the Isle of St. Thomas's uh, house to manage his house so that he could have contact with the slaves. But even though he was a servant in the governor's house, there was still such a gulf between him and the slaves so that he gave up his job working for the governor and he went and he lived in a little shack on the uh, slave's plantation. And there he made contact with them. But you see, he had been willing to sell himself into slavery, to be under the whip, under the hard work, under the burning sun, all the hours of the day, in starvation uh, rations and in abject poverty. And he was willing to do it all. That's the kind of uh, response that God is looking for. Obedience, where you're doing the right things. I tick the box, yes, haven't murdered anybody today. That's not enough. We are to act out of respect for our leaders. In verse 9 we read, Paul says, I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. What he's doing is he's not throwing his weight around. He's not saying, I'm going to bully you, I'm controlling you. He says, look, I'm helpless, I'm weak. I'm an old man. How old do you think he was? Philo, who was a um, uh, Jewish philosopher in those days, he wrote the seven stages of man. 
Now, long before uh, Shakespeare wrote about the seven ages of man, Philo said there are seven stages. First of all, early childhood, years naught to seven. Secondly, later childhood, ages eight to 14. Thirdly, young man, ages 15 to 23. Fourthly, man, ages uh, 24 to 40. Then, hang on, have I got that right? No, 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 no. Adolescence was 15 to 23. Young man was 24 to 40. Man is 41 to 48. And old man... 49 to 56, and then you have the very old man, <laughs> 57 onwards. But, in, you know, mortality rates were less in those days. But when Paul says he's an old man, he's putting himself in that 49 to 56-year-old bracket. But old men were thought, these are people who now need some help. Paul says, I need help. And I'm also a prisoner. I am helpless. And so out of respect for Paul, he knows Philemon will act. Because that's just what Christian leadership is all about. And all this is possible. Having different leaders and different following, it's all possible because we have different lives. Verses 10 and 11. Paul says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while uh, he was in chains. We have been converted. We have been justified. There was a terrific battle for uh, Onesimus' soul. He wouldn't have been in prison. He would have met friends of Paul who had brought him to the prison to listen to Paul. And Paul will tell him about the God who created him and, and who his heart is restless until he finds peace with. About Jesus Christ who's come to rescue him and has died in his place. And how he needs to respond in repenting of his sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. And it comes to that point where Onesimus, he commits his life to following Jesus Christ. And, and it's all been a big struggle. Paul says he became my son. He says, I gave birth to him. It's been a labor. But Onesimus has become a Christian. But it doesn't stop there. Not only are we converted, but then we are being changed. Verse 11. This is not just justification, but sanctification. And the Apostle Paul shows his sense of humor here. I don't know if you know about that much humor in the Bible, but the Apostle Paul is uh, he's making a joke on Onesimus' name because the name Onesimus literally means useful. It was the name you would give to your ox. It was the name you would give to your donkey. It was the name you would give to a slave. Useful. And Paul says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful. <laughs> He's really who he was meant to be, and um, both to you and to me. It's not just a joke, though. It's a glorious reality. His life has been transformed. Stephen Lungu, from that angry terrorist to the evangelist, Anesimus, around A.D. 55. That angry man with 
the scars of slavery, with the behavior of a thief, with the mentality of a runaway. And he gets converted. About 53 years after he was converted, in the year 108 AD, Ignatius of Antioch is traveling to Rome under escort. He is going to be executed. He dies either in the Colosseum or the Circus Maximus. He's the a leader of the church in Antioch. He is a, a disciple of the Apostle John. He was a friend of Polycarp. And on the way to Rome, he writes letters to all the churches he knows. And he scribbles them out. So there's long, long, long sentences. And it gives us an eye-opener as to how the early Christians preached the gospel. And he writes to the church in Ephesus. And we've got all his, his letters today. And he writes to the church in Ephesus. And in chapter 6, he's talking about having respect for your leaders, for your bishop, your minister. And he says, um, Therefore, we should look upon the bishop, even as we would upon the Lord himself. In, and indeed, Onesimus himself greatly commends your good order in God. Three times he mentions Onesimus as the leader of the church in Ephesus. This runaway slave, this angry man with all his scars and all his sin, he meets Jesus Christ, his life is transformed, and he becomes useful. That's what the gospel does to us as individuals. It changes us from the inside out. Indeed, sometimes it surprises us. And we mustn't fight against it. We mustn't be so frightened we want to be controlled by the standards around us. No, we kneel at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, make me more like Jesus. And bit by bit, we are changed. Bit by bit, we are transformed. So that as leaders, we are like Christ. As followers, we are like Christ. As a church, we are like Christ. And this is something beautiful. This is what we want, isn't it? And you know, it's only going to be if we all take this seriously. If I do my bit and you do your bit and we all work together, then we can become what Jesus Christ shed his blood so that we might become. This is what we want, to be a transformed people, wonderfully different from society, wonderful, wonderfully similar to Jesus Christ.